The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This is Nate Hansen And Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back to Almost Heretical for part two of our conversation with Tim Mackey. Yeah, in part one, we kind of talked about the complexities of the Bible, the literary structure, the patterns, how one story can kind of have two different meanings to it even. But uh, yeah, what do we talk about in this one, Tim? Yeah, it's kind of jumping off the question of, you know, if riddle is a good word to describe a lot of what's going on in the Bible, especially uh, the Hebrew Bible, that's something we're supposed to wrestle through, scratch our heads over, essentially disagree with one another on and and engage in dialogue over various meanings or uh, different options uh, for meaning. Essentially, how does that change the way we today as uh, Western Protestant Christians uh, or even just people who are vaguely interested in the Bible, how does that change how we ought to approach it, what we do with it, uh, how it affects us, how it affects our formulation of ethics? And so we talked with Tim about that and even in part of it, You know, I sort of pressed him on uh, some sort of hot button uh, issues and uh, modern day concerns and the ways that the Bible's been used to hurt people uh, and the ways that Christian theology is still hurting people today. And we basically asked, you know, how how does this vast complexity of what the Bible is and how it's functioning, uh, how does that change the way we wrestle with traditional Christian viewpoints on various ethics? So we got into that with Tim. Uh, we talked through it a bit. And then after the conversation, Nate and I felt like we just had to sit down and, and reflect even further. And so we'll share some of that with you at the end. Okay. Uh, if you haven't listened to part one, stop this right now and go back and listen to part one. And if you have, here's part two. Um, one way I've actually, this is to use another Star Wars analogy. Um, one way that I can now see my relationship to the Bible as it's been developing, the more I'm, I sit with it and wrestle with it. It's a lot like Luke Skywalker's experience of Yoda the first time he meets him, uh, on planet Dagobah in the Empire Strikes Back. And it's all about Luke's perception uh, Luke's, sorry, not just his perception, but his expectations of what he's going to find. Hmm. And so he's, he's going to look for a great Jedi master. He lands in a swamp. He finds a little silly green creature. Um, now, of course, the silly green creature is the great master. Um, but because Luke's preconceived ideas about what a great master ought to look like, those expectations, ironically, blind him to the thing that's sitting in front of him. 
And until he's able to set aside his preconceived notion of what a Jedi Master should be and just discover this unique Jedi Master on its own terms, then all of a, sudden, a whole new world opens up. And the whole, that's the whole brilliance of that part of the story is how wise Yoda is. Think of Yoda's afterlife in all the movies. I mean, he's, he's almost like a god figure in the stories. And to think that it all began with that silly green creature. And that's totally my experience with, with the Bible. I didn't have a lot of negative baggage from childhood with the Bible. Um, it's more just reading it in my early 20s, just being like, what on earth is this? Is this, what? this is crazy. <laughs> what is this? And, um, but discovering as I'm able to let the texts themselves shape how they mean and what they mean it's just i just am blown away every day i just am like i can't um this the sophistication of these authors and the profound things that they're saying about human nature and about god's work at work in the world i just i, I don't have language to talk about how it blows my categories and so to me especially this design pattern just, um, for me, has just been a mega discovery and kind of retooling my whole paradigm for what the Bible is. That kind of, I was going to ask something else, but it kind of uh, made me want to ask a question I was going to ask later. But how do you personally engage with the Bible? Do you engage with the Bible in a way that's not, you know, you're studying and breaking it down for the next Bible project video? Mm. How does it, how does it like, uh, I guess, mm. influence? your life and how do you how do you like do you make decisions based on what mm-hmm. the bible says or like i mean this mm-hmm. is common stuff mm-hmm. that i think a lot of us have done we make decisions yeah. based on what the bible says because if it's the golden tablets from heaven yeah, then this yeah, is god yeah. telling you what you're supposed to do but yeah. if it's not that then like yeah how, how do you personally i guess engage with it yeah yeah well it's not simple i i actually don't think the answer to that simple um which people from a very conservative background find infuriating, but often because it's from a preconceived idea of if God wants to tell us what to do so that you can go to the good place after you die, um, then he would be very clear. And so here are the 13 verses about sex, and this is the rule about, you know what I mean? And here's the rules about money, and here's the... So, but, uh, but of course, just the Bible, that model of approaching the Bible self-destructs on any common sense reading, if you're just consistent with it. So the, it it's a world-forming kind of text where it's, it's, it's wrapping its arms around your whole life experience and giving you a narrative framework to give meaning to your own life and, and to history. And so, um, uh, yeah. I don't. I actually try to avoid uh, controversial topics for the most part, <laughs> um, but marriage is an interesting one, you know. Where like on page one, uh, you know, the, some kind of ideal is being set there with a single man and a single woman and a covenant. Hey Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? 
Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> and then you go on and watch all throughout the rest of the stories where people violate that ideal and their lives turn out horribly. I mean, horribly. <laughs> and so that's an example, I, I think, of how... And as a reader of these texts, or if you think of growing up, you know, as, as a Jew in the Second Temple period, you've grown up on this literature, that's shaping your imagination for what is good and what is not good, what will lead to a good life and what will not, what's a life that honors God and His will and what's a life that doesn't. Um, and so I, th- I think the Bible works on us on that more of a deep substructure level, <laughs> of our worldview concept as a whole. And so for me, I I actually can't read the Bible without my notes out and my charts and a Hebrew dictionary. I I can't. I can't engage the Bible in any other way now because um, I I think I'm beginning to track with how it communicates and like what these authors are trying to say. Hmm. And if I had grown up as a native reader of these texts, I would just get it, you know? but I'm not, you know. I I grew up skateboarding, not reading the Bible, and so <laughs> uh, I'm coming late to the game. And so I I'm trying to acquire a more native skill set for how these texts mean. And so for me, it's all one thing. Like uh, as I think about how to raise my kids, you know, I've got a five and seven year old. I'm thinking about this all the time. And so I'm trying to think of how to invite them into the story in a way that I won't have to help them unlearn a bunch of stuff later but also in a way that really is helping guide their moral development. And um, these stories are amazing. Like these stories have an amazing way, <laughs> I think, of, of shaping humans on, on that real deep level, which is why the Bible exerts you know, the force that it does still today, I think, in our culture. You know, most of us, if we grew up, or not even grew up, but lived some uh, significant portion of our lives in in Protestant church world, Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of the Bible as the Word of God Mm. has significantly impacted uh, our thinking Mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I know for me, at least, and I think it's probably pretty typical, Mm. uh, at least of Western Christianity, some of what that meant— uh, you know, you go back to that Yoda example of, you know, what are uh, what are yeah. our expectations yeah. that impacted and, and sort of uh, sort of carried into our minds uh, particular expectations. And I think a lot of that had to do with sort of like divine commandments, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that was, you know, law or more like Christian ethics or who's mm-hmm. in, who's out, like mm-hmm. uh, that sort of moral... Um, I don't know, I guess I'm stumbling over words for it, but that kind mm. of, you know, especially Old Testament, you would like, mm. yeah. <laughs> or even Paul's letters, yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah. we read Paul's letters, we figure out what Paul thought was good and what Paul thought was bad, and that yeah. is law in, in the church, right? So, and and then you use language like riddles, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. So like, I guess, what does it mean for you now, uh, 
for the Bible to be the word of God. Mm. And I guess even that example you brought up of marriage, like I know from our friendship, Tim, that you're someone who like cares about what science proves Mm, (laughs) and mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. your neighbors are thinking and feeling Mm -hmm, and what mm -hmm. uh, culture is expressing even outside the church. Right. And, um, and in my lifetime, at least what science has shown about sexuality, (laughs) gender marriage has changed dramatically from my parents and grandparents uh, lives. Like how have you just kind of like wrestled with, yeah, you've devoted your life to this text that we call the word of God, right? And all the other messiness and complexity of of human life. Yep. Wow. Yeah, man, that's a great, it's probably like half, half a dozen wonderful questions bundled together there. It's not always the case. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, so, so to, at least to, to pick one to kind of work on. Um, so the word, the word of God question. Um, so that uh, the, my own location, my own social location and identity in engaging the Bible is actually important for how the story itself works. So I'm not Jewish. <laughs> I'm not an Israelite. Uh, I'm uh, a West Coast, 21st century American. Uh, my ancestry goes to the Scottish Highlands, you know, as a, a Mackay. But, uh, you know, I, so um, how do I relate? The reason I'm reading the Hebrew Bible is, uh, to put it the way one of my favorite Old Testament theologians puts it, a guy named Christopher Seitz, it's because I got a library card um, by joining the Messianic Jesus movement. And when I, it, it actually wasn't from reading the Bible that I became a part of Jesus' people, it's because I heard stories about him, and I heard his teachings and his life represented by friends and peers that were really compelling to me. And then I became compelled as I read the stories about him. And uh, I still remember this. Like one of the titles given to Jesus in one of the earliest accounts that's in the New Testament is he's called the Word of God. <laughs> he's the Word. The Word of God is the person. Um, and then as you read those stories about Jesus, he... It's clear that his, the way Jesus thought and talked and viewed all of reality and even his own identity was all in relationship to the storyline of the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew scriptures. Like they, they shaped his whole sense of reality. Um, and so, and what he said was that the Hebrew Bible is a narrative that's pointing to himself and what he was saying and doing to his life, death, and resurrection. And so, uh, for me, that's always given a kind of, somewhat of a framework, that the Word of God is the person of Jesus um, in his life, death, and resurrection. And that living Word claimed that these written texts are making a set of claims about God and the world and humanity, that all lead up to himself. And so I that's kind of just been my way of putting it together. The word of God <laughs> is Jesus and the text that he said point to him. And um, they're not a rule book. Um, there are rules within it, 613 actually, in the first three quarters. <laughs> um, but those rules fit into a narrative context 
And the whole narrative is about how people really suck at following moral rules. <laughs> In fact, they're terrible. Uh, they would even they'll embrace. We will embrace our own self-destruction, to the complete ignorance of common sense rules that have been written out for us in stone, you know. Um, so the rules play a really important role in the book, but it's not a rule book. Uh, it's an epic narrative pointing to a person who did something for us all that we, we can't do for ourselves. So to me, that's how the Word of God thing fits together. And I, we could explore a lot more, but that's kind of my short, not so short. <laughs> thing on the Word of God. So I'm happy to pick up another part of that question, but that's at least that one part. Yeah, so maybe maybe do pick up the other piece. So on the, you know, the example of, of marriage and mm -hmm. our lifetime and yeah. uh, that the conversation and how much it's changed yeah, and the different yeah. voices that have contributed uh, different experiences and perspectives Yep. Uh, that severely break away from mm. traditional mm -hmm. interpretations, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. The traditional church uh, yep. world. Yep. Like how does your sense of Jesus as the word, these texts as the word, these mm -hmm. complexities, all of that, mm -hmm. uh, how, does, how do you work through uh, yep. these conversations? Well, so, yeah, so maybe one would be when a great example is, uh, is the, the meaning of marriage. Um, so when Jesus, this is interesting, and I remember this struck me many years ago as significant, when, Je when Jesus is approached and asked about loopholes in marriage law, in re-divorce law, um, the place where Jesus didn't go was to the laws of the, uh, the, laws of the Torah. <laughs> um, where he goes is pages one and two of Genesis, which describe uh, a divine ideal, a divine and human ideal for when uh, the human family is functioning as the ideal community, as God's image and co-rulers in the world, it looks like. And then that's how, clearly how Jesus conceives of pages one and two. And so his response to people that it's, he's talking to is actually really radical. Um, is he goes back to that divine ideal des described on pages one and two, and then he just says, yeah, like that's how we roll in in the Jesus movement <laughs> um, is is one man, one woman, lifetime covenant. Why? Well, in Genesis one, it's all about the theological meaning of gender and of covenant, and how. Uh, and so in Genesis one, you have the one God who who wants to create images of God's self, and those images are one species that are made up of two others. Um, and that when those two others make a covenant with each other, when the two, when the, so you have one humanity that's two gendered others that become one again through covenant, and in that covenant of love, new life is generated. And this whole package deal is said to be a, a, a theological symbol, or an image is the Hebrew word, for God's, for God. Who or what is God? Well, one way to think about it is one and many who are one, resulting in love and the emergence of new life and shared love with others. So I, um, that's really profound, I think. That's a really profound narrative claim about humanity and God. And I think Jesus tuned into that. And that's why he cared about that. And so that's why he cites that passage, I think, when he's talking about marriage and divorce in his, in his own day. And it's exactly that... 
um, new creation marriage ethic that you see the I think the apostles work working out after that, and so I think that that's where I'll just I'll just I'll leave it and say for me that's what it means to look at the story as giving ethical guidance is this whole story is about the world as you and I know it is beautiful and shot through with transcendence and beauty and glory. It's also really horrific and terrible and the ways that we hurt each other and the ways that the world hurts us, you know, uh, and that it's all, we're living in, in a shadow, um, in a shadow version of what creation could be and is meant to be. And what the Jesus movement is, as far as all the language you put around it, the kingdom of God, is it sort of like a, a, a new creation bursting into the present, which means that it shatters all of our concepts of identity and gender and family and it reconfigures them, pointing to the new creation. And so when it comes to marriage and sexuality, for me, that's the framework to engage it in. And then... I, you're going to feel like I'm punting, maybe, and, that's, and maybe I am. Um, I feel like that conversation is so important, and it's not at all at the forefront of my thinking. <laughs> and there's just a lot, there's actually a lot that I want to read and think about on that topic that there's just not enough hours in the day right now. And so I, I feel like there's really great people having that front-edge conversation, however. Um, and it's how does that biblical narrative vision align with our experience of sexuality and gender, and how do these two interface um, before the dawn of the new creation? And I feel like there's probably a lot of conversations on that topic that maybe are just starting to happen. Because um, what usually happens is the Bible is a divine rule book dropped from heaven. Here's a verse, take it out of context, and then whether intentionally or not, I end up using it as a weapon to reaffirm some kind of cultural, socioeconomic boundary line between me and them. That's usually how the Bible plays in these conversations. And I think Jesus would be really disappointed <laughs> in his followers about that. And so for me, it's about how does the narrative work? What are the claims of the narrative? And how does that engage the best of what we know about gender and biology or whatever t today? I think that's where the conversation could be had. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm so long-winded. <laughs> On a, in a similar vein, um, speaking of the Bible as mm. a weapon, mm. um, this book that we mm. love and have spent many, many years studying and mm. appreciating and using in our lives uh, has a troubled history yeah. of being used as a weapon um, mm -hmm. against a lot of people. Um, I'm just curious how you've mm. wrestled with that, um, attaching your life and career to mm -hmm. this book mm -hmm. um, and to its history. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, how have you processed that? How have you wrestled with that? Yeah. Yeah, I do wrestle with it a lot. Um, a, a word picture has come into my mind more than once recently. Um, you know, you could say something similar about like the history of the axe. 
<laughs> you know, what a wonderful tool. What a great gift to humanity. Um, and also, what a horrific thing. If I were to know all of the things that have been done with axes in human history, I would probably not want to ever touch an axe again. But at the same time, if I live in a forest, what, an, you know, um, I think there's something like that happening here. And obviously the Bible is a much more sophisticated kind of thing <laughs> than an axe. And the ways that it, it gets misused are usually a lot more complicated. And um, you can misuse something as complicated as the Bible, even with good intentions, and not know that you're doing it. Whereas it's a little bit harder to do that with an axe, maybe. Um, so yes, um, I'm not saying this is a good response on my part, but be, being in the thick of local church pastoral ministry for seven years, I was just kind of forced to be in those type of situations and conversations, just being in people's lives about the hot topics and trying to help connect people to the wisdom of the Bible and making sure I wasn't consciously or unconsciously hurting anybody. Um, being in a more academic or research role, at least for this season right now, has actually I've experienced as a kind of relief <laughs> because I'm not being asked to talk about those things right now. And right, um, it's kind of a gift to have a season where it's like, whew, I'm going to try and bracket that troubled history of the Bible's abuse and just take a season. I, I, for me right now, I experience it like what I think may be that decade of Paul the Apostle going to off radar for, to Arabia for a while and just reading and soaking and reconfiguring. And that's kind of a season I'm in right now is I'm trying to tune out of the most pressing, urgent questions of our day. Because what I find is that they actually distort my ability to hear the Bible on its own terms. And then once I'm able to do that for a season and then come back to the pressing questions, I have a, a whole different way of, of thinking and talking about it. And so that's my way of relating to it right now, actually, is to tune out from the controversies for a season and just try and sit and learn all over again. And probably, in God's grace, he'll probably lead me back into the fray in some way. I don't, look, I don't actually want to contribute because um, I don't think the controversies really help us understand the Bible. I think they just help us get more angry at each other and use the Bible as a weapon <laughs> in the process. So I don't, what I'm saying is I don't, I don't know. I have a complicated relationship to the use and abuse of the Bible. Um, but I think we all do, don't we, in our own ways. I'm just curious if you feel a um, responsibility, I guess, mm. with the knowledge that you do have. Um, mm to i guess i guess what i'm getting at is like people um there are a lot of people being hurt even right now mm -hmm. by the ways that the bible is being used mm -hmm. um i guess i'm just curious mm. i feel like if i had the the knowledge that you have in the years of mm -hmm. you know biblical research that you have and you you have the uh, i guess the ability to kind of almost give evidence or support to those people that are being hurt. I just wonder if mm -hmm. you, if you just personally, if you ever wrestle with that, like I know that, you know, there is that, like I felt yeah. that too, just not being a pastor right now, like being yeah. out of the, yeah. um, out of the, you know, having that responsibility of like having to have a position on everything or mm -hmm. like a stance on something mm -hmm. for, to teach from or, mm -hmm. um, but then I also, you know, I just, I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, one thing I have learned about at least Protestant, my experience in Protestant church communities, um, and there's lot, so many factors, I don't even know all the factors going on, but um, when people take head-on approaches to offering a different point of view about theology, it almost always fails, almost always. Um, and it's, there's social and religious reasons um, where communities and people, we're so invested in my current way of making sense of the world that when that's threatened it directly, <laughs> um, it's just because it's not just about a theological position. It's about the stability of the universe. You know? <laughs> and so what I have found and through the Bible project, that's my vehicle for doing it is just instead of saying, here's what's wrong. Just show a way that I think is a little more faithful to what's right and build it out as a comprehensive paradigm of a way of engaging. And what I find is if you have people who care about the Bible, just start reading the Bible in a way that's more faithful to how it's meant to be read. And people, if they, people have genuine motives and really care and want to learn, they'll get it. And like your mind, your mind will be blown. And just like me, you're slowly like converted. <laughs> through the beauty, I think, of what these texts are trying to say. And all of a sudden, the things I cared about three years ago, I don't care about as much anymore. It changes the questions that you ask. So that's my, that's my strategy. Is, is, it's the same kind of goal, is to help reconfigure people's paradigms through the Bible. But I just, I'm convinced that the head-on approach and three views and your view is wrong for this reason and my view is right. I actually just, that doesn't convince anybody. All people do is walk away from those more reaffirmed than what they already wanted to be convinced of in the first place. There are exceptions to that, but I think that's generally true. And so I just, I'm not interested in that kind of sparring. Uh, I would rather just show what's awesome and point people to what's beautiful and, and good and and I, I don't know. That's at least where, where I'm going right now. Yeah, no, totally. I, I think that is a much better. I think there's like even brain science on that, right? To show that, mm. you know, trying to convince someone by mm. uh, attack, I guess, or by uh, debate or whatever just doesn't mm -hmm. work. People just leave mm -hmm. more entrenched. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I was more just thinking too, like, if you could show like this verse that, you know, that's mm -hmm. not even the right way to use that or something, instead of like saying, I don't know, even just on the LGBTQ issue, like, yeah. you know, stop hurting people in this way, like, yeah, because that's yeah. not even what these verses, yeah, that's we, right. we need to start the conversation somewhere else, not correct. just with, here's what the Bible says on this. Yeah, know? that's I don't correct. Know. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, another part of it is, and maybe this is my way of insulating myself from hot topics, is, you know, for at least for the mission of the Bible Project, we're trying to help people discover the paradigm of the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so... That's our mission. <laughs> it gives us plenty of material to work with. And the hot, the hot topics that people would wish that we would make videos about, I think would actually distract us from that mission. And um, I just, there are other people who care about those issues and they actually probably are more well-read on them anyway. <laughs> and I just don't see it as my calling right now right now on, on with with that platform if I was a pastor at a local church I would have to to be faithful as a pastor because I would need to be serving the needs of where these people are at and 
that that's where those issues come up. Anyway, that's a good question. That's um, a good question. I think about it a lot. Tim, you and I have talked a little bit about this, but like I think I told you, I don't know, a year ago or something, like for me, the, the first big like eye-opener was just uh, after all the church stuff went down and I stopped being a pastor. It was just mm. like, oh, I can't believe how acculturated I was to thinking that my job was to be the one to form positions and then tell mm-hmm. people, mm. <laughs> you know, where to land, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, the most... Uh, mm. One honestly, one of the most refreshing and I think, uh, you know, important transformative things for me and and being away from being uh, in a pastoral role is to stop feeling like that's my job, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And mm-hmm. to you know, some a lot of what I was hearing you saying uh, was that you actually think that that the Bible. Uh, and even your Christian faith drives us to engage the conversation entirely, like holistically listening to everybody, (laughs) right? Mm. And listening Mm. to people that Mm. have been hurt by the Bible, listening to people that don't want to listen to the Bible, Mm -hmm. right? And, Mm -hmm. um, and that the, that the, the conversation is, is part of the, the point. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's and right. uh, yeah. for so many years, I was just trained mm-hmm. to think that my job was to resolve the conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, I've got my own leanings and my own sense of, you know, ideas and the way they hurt people or affect people or whatever. And what, what I want to believe and what I don't want to believe. But but a lot of it for me is just going like, oh, like whatever my opinions are, I want them to be. I want my presence in any space to be something that uh opens other people up to form their own yeah, yeah to discover <laughs> opinions and to listen discover. yeah yeah that's right right yeah yeah what what else is the bible except a text that doesn't give you like the goodies on the bottom shelf <laughs> it's actually trying to force you to discover the meaning of this thing uh not yourself not by yourself but but uh, I think in, in a community of people who are learning and reading and talking together and from each other about what they see. Um, so yes, I, yeah, yeah, thank you. That's a really good, that's a good way of putting it. The, 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 our core texts themselves are pushing us towards community learning and discovery. We, uh, we sent a tweet out today, uh, this morning, Nate did. Uh, that we were going to interview you and asked if people had some questions. Can we do like oh. a power round of uh, Whoa, all right. some questions that we got for you? Sure, sure. I'm not very, like, as you know already, I'm not very good at answering <laughs> things <laughs> concisely. Okay. So I'll, I'll make try. a little buzzer. I'll try my best. <laughs> so two questions sort of related to inerrancy. The first one from Jonathan Shut Shoot. It says, does he, that's you, Tim, view as distinct a... Does he view a distinction between inerrancy and infallibility, or is it mostly semantics? Hmm. And then in a, in a somewhat similar uh, note, Charity Johnson uh, says to us, tell us his thoughts on inerrancy. Hmm. Is it helpful for understanding how the Bible works, or is it a junk drawer word? So you tell <laughs> us your thoughts on inerrancy so we can tell Charity. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, you know, I, I did this a while ago, so it's, but it's not off the top of my head. There is an important difference historically between the word inerrancy and infallibility. As I am able to recall it in the moment, I, I could be wrong. There's probably more to it. Infallibility has to do with the Bible's effectiveness um, in aligning people with God's will, 
coming under it as an authority to give us God's will. Inerrancy is a, a more modern word um, connected to that thing we talked about earlier about the painting of the pipe. Um, does the painting refer to the real thing in a way in which there is no errors in that reference process? <laughs> um, and I, um, I join the ranks of those who just find the word inerrancy to be setting up the conversation in a, just a, not just an unhelpful way, but just a really odd way. Like, what a weird way to have a conversation. So think of that painting of the pipe. We could ask René Magritte, oh, look, here's your painting of a pipe. Where, show us the real pipe. And are there, is your painting without error in how it represents the pipe? <laughs> what a weird question to ask. You know what I mean? Like what more you would ask is, okay, tell us about the pipe and what you saw in that pipe that made you represent it in this way. I, that's a more normal way to have the conversation. What did you see in the referent that made you portray it in this way? And um, I prefer the Bible's own vocabulary about this, which, which is the concept of faith, the word faithful. Or, or it gets translated as truth. It's the word group family from our word amen, um, or, or, which is a verb to consider something trustworthy, f faithful, faithworthy. Um, and then it also gets, there are other Hebrew words formed off of it, like emet or emunah, but it's about like personal reliability. It's relational trustworthiness. And so what the, the biblical authors use this vocabulary <clears throat> to talk about God's own character, but also, um, you know, the famous Psalms, Psalm 19 or 119, these, this is the vocabulary they use to describe um, uh, the scriptures, is that they're faithful. They accomplish the purposes uh, faithfully to which God puts them. They represent faithfully what God wants his people to hear. So I've just come to embrace the biblical voc vocabulary that the scriptures are faithful in representing God's will to his people. Um, there you go. So faithfulness. I don't think the term inerrancy is very helpful. I think the biblical vocabulary of faithfulness is more helpful. Cool. Uh, okay, next question. Bob Lynn asked, are they, meaning you and the Bible Project, going to update your reading scripture app to reflect the more recent learnings of ancient Hebrew understanding of the cosmos, divine counsel, spiritual reality. I think he's talking about the mm -hmm. Michael Heiser yeah. stuff there. Yeah. Um, been listening to the podcast series, he yeah. says. Yeah, we're making a, a seven-part video series that we're going to call Spiritual Beings. And it's going to be the everything, everything that we've done in the last three or four months in our podcast, we're distilling into a seven-part video series. So divine counsel... Angels, cherubim, demons, the new humanity, the whole thing. Uh, seven videos. Yeah. So, yeah, it's going to be exciting. They're, they're, we're uh, in production right now, and they're going to be really awesome. Paige Soufflet, faithful listener of ours, says, Something I've heard from his podcast, especially in the God series, and yours, a lot in gender especially, is that there are words that have been translated poorly from the original text, and this affects how we read and interpret the Bible in English. Mm. Is there a specific English Bible translation you have found to be most accurate, mm. or a few that seem to be most accurate together? Mm. I have just heard all three of you mention the poorly translated words and phrases in both podcasts, so I'm mm. just curious to your thoughts. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, that's a great question. 
I do want to at least reframe uh, how I want to talk about it. <laughs> um, I've probably talked about it in the past a lot of different ways. Um, it's more that the process of translation from any language into any language is also a, a translation of worldviews. And so it's actually impossible for any language to fully communicate everything of what's happening in another language. So I know sometimes I say, oh, that's an unhelpful translation or it's poor. Probably what I should start saying is, mm, well, that translation only captures one element or it's capturing just a part of it and not even the most important part, if that makes sense. And so really, I, um, I don't think that any one English translation is like the best. I, th I actually think... Um, the, the, the goodies are in, in reading many um, and noticing the differences. And when you notice differences between translations, it seems significant. That's usually a clue that there's some, there's some thing there in Hebrew or in Greek that's really significant and that's hard to capture in English vocabulary and worldview. And then it's time to get out a dictionary or uh, a free online concordance or a commentary and, and do a little bit more learning. So, um, uh, one, one of my favorite scholars, Scott McKnight, says translations are like a bag of golf clubs. Uh, and it's not about one being best. It's different ones are designed for different purposes and do different things. And to, to get better at golf, you need many golf clubs, not just one. So I think something is similar with the Bible. I think you would say that, Tim. So specifically for noticing repeated word patterns oh, and yep. the word plays that Correct. we're talking about. Uh, the tr some of the translations say, like the NASB is one that I yes. look to, that it can be more awkward to read. Correct. Uh, yeah. In in English, but are preserving yeah. uh, repetitions in English translations that can be helpful. That's right. There are s even more hyper little translations, but they are almost unreadable. There's an old one called Young's Literal Translation. It's almost incomprehensible to read in English. <laughs> um, but so the New American Standard. Uh, is the most readable English translation, but yeah, uh, does preserve the repetition of vocabulary more often than any, any of the others. Mm -hmm. So it's a great study Bible. Okay, last question here from Sean Morgan. They say, I would be interested in what his spiritual practices are. I mean, how does he connect with the divine? I think this would affect how he reads the Bible. Yeah, um, yeah that's a great question. Well, um, the Bible is a medium through which I encounter um, the beautiful mind that I think is speaking through it. Um, so I'm pretty regularly having like, oh my God, moments where I have to put down my pens and I get teary. <laughs> or I just have to stare out a window and just be like, I never expected to hear that. Is that really what it's saying right now? So that's kind of been my experience. Uh, the, um, the Bible for me is a powerful medium of encounter. And the other one is um, going hiking and backpacking. Um, staring at a mountain does something to me that I don't know what else. I, it's uh, enrapturing. <laughs> I'm brought to a different level of consciousness. I'm quite serious uh, when I'm looking at a mountain and it just helps me transcend 
the details and the, the, you know, the static noise and think about the questions of ultimate meaning and significance and beauty. So that's kind of it. Um, church has never been, for me, a place where I have those kind of moments. I think church communities are important and, um, uh, and they're a real gift, especially when they're healthy ones, which is not as common <laughs> as whatever, whatever a healthy church means. Uh, but uh, for me, the scriptures and being outdoors are, are where the action is for me on a, on a personal level. Well, we'll let you get to dinner. Thank you so much for jumping on. Yeah, you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great to talk with you. Happy, happy to connect. Tim, I appreciate you, man. Yeah, you too. You too. Yeah, I'm, um, keep on doing what you're doing. I know that um, these podcasts, as we're all discovering, the podcast world uh, cr- creates so many great opportunities for people to find communities and voices that they can't find anywhere in their own community you know so it's really that the podcast work is actually i think important work okay nate we are now in the future retrospectively reflecting on the second part of our conversation with tim how did it strike you what were you feeling where you at yeah i pushed him a bit there um on my question about responsibility and if he feels like he has responsibility. And the reason I did that specifically on the topic of affirming or not affirming LGBTQ people is because um, I I see so many people getting hurt. And so to me, it's not just uh, a hot topic that we can choose to engage with or or not engage with um, because people are, are getting hurt right now. So like I would be totally comfortable with someone choosing not to engage with um, a, a topic that's not hurting people. That's like kind of a controversial thing. Um, I'm trying to think. I guess like in the past it would be. I think of like Galileo and the the flat Earth um, or the Earth centric versus the the sun at the center of the solar system. That that kind of stuff. And um, like I guess well I guess Galileo got hurt in that whole thing, but. He got killed <laughs> more than more than getting hurt. He got killed um, by the church. But I would be comfortable, more comfortable with like if we're talking about something like that. Like maybe it doesn't matter because people aren't really getting hurt by this whole thing. But like with this topic, just with the stats on this, um, on suicide rates, and um, yeah, I just feel like you you can't, especially if you have knowledge, you have responsibility to to help those people and help the Bible not be used in that way. So that's why I was kind of trying to to push on that because I, I kind of wanted a, a little bit of a different or, or better answer to that, I guess. I don't know. How did you feel, Tim? Yeah, I think similarly, um, you know, I've, I've had more, uh, personal, you know, conversations and, uh, hang out time with Tim than you have. And we've talked about a lot of this stuff before, uh, in private and, um, you know, f- one is just personality wise. I think he and I are really different. Uh, you're also different from either of the two of us, but, um, you know, when he was talking about whether to sort of tackle ideas head on, right. Or to just sort of try to model a better way forward. Uh, I've come to 
respect and appreciate that that Tim is really good at doing what he's doing all the while feeling like there need to be plenty of us doing the other thing right and uh and actually challenging ideas and saying these are toxic these hurt people these ideas need to be uh pushed back on and questioned and i agree that in large part that is ineffective oftentimes at changing anybody's mind but we've said it before that's not why we're doing it the value is not in trying to change conservative or fundamentalist christians mind on ideas it's to affirm everyone who's been hurt by conservative or fundamentalist ideology or churches or parents or pastors or whoever that they aren't alone in feeling like those ideas are killing them they aren't alone in wanting something different and that there are other people lots of other people out there who want something better and who are willing to say those uh, those ideas or those ways of being uh, suck and they should change, right? And so that challenge, it's kind of like the idea of, of bearing witness, right? <laughs> assuming no one's going to listen to you and actually assuming that those in power are going to use that power to push back on you, but you're doing it for the sake of those who don't have much power or say in society to observe that there are others who are kind of standing with them on their side. Can I just say too, like it's not very much fun i mean sticking your neck out and challenging the common views of the bible is not fun and sexy work it's really hard to be misunderstood by certain groups of christians and it would be a lot easier to just not talk about controversial topics but i just go there are so many people being hurt like real people being hurt by some of these ideas and hurt by the way the bible is being used against them as a weapon even if the intentions are good, I, I know a lot of times they are, or people no longer fitting into their church or sometimes even their family because their ideas about the Bible or God have changed or they've come out as LGBTQ to their Christian family and have been rejected because of that or whatever it is. For me, I've just always wanted to help people who are being oppressed or marginalized. And so I feel like I can't not stand up for them and stick my neck out with whatever platform or power I have. So I would just say that part is not very much fun, but it's totally worth it. And I get encouraged when I see people far smarter than me with far bigger platforms than I have sticking their necks out as well. And lots and lots of them are. Right. And so specifically on the topic of sexuality, gender, all the ideologies surrounding family and uh, marriage in Christian world. Uh, I think you and I, Nate, are both in a similar place of just admitting that the that the science and the stories of the suffering of LGBTQ people, uh, the suicide rate being at least five times as high in our country for gay and bisexual teenagers than for heterosexual teenagers um, or, or the the crazy statistic that uh, even though that the estimate of the number of uh, teenagers who identify just as gay lesbian or bisexual is is somewhere in the seven percent uh, vicinity 
within the realm of say three to to ten percent, that forty percent of homeless teenagers are lesbian, gay, or bisexual, and that nearly seventy percent of those say that they are on the streets because they have <laughs> either been kicked out of their families or were being so shunned, ostracized, and uh, tormented within their families that they felt like they had to run away because of their sexuality or, or gender identity. We've come to a place, I think you and I, Nate, where those stats and that truth, just just like the science uh, that the earth is not at the center and the earth is not flat, uh, eventually has to win the day. And I would say even, even more so uh, today because people's lives are on the line. Um, and to say, okay, regardless of what we think the Bible says, regardless of our Christian tradition, we have a responsibility to sit down and rethink and deconstruct and reconstruct our ideologies based on the evidence of this fruit. And I think really what I was hearing Tim say is that what he's discovered the Bible to be is this massively complex work of literary genius where, you know, take that Genesis 9 example, where a text literally has at least two different completely opposing meanings (laughs) that the way this thing is meant to function is to draw us into conversation and, and specifically conversation where we listen to other voices that aren't the Bible, right? That are supposedly unbiblical. Those voices matter equally. Um, and even people who want nothing to do with the Bible or especially people who have been hurt by the Bible. And that the Bible is supposed to start that conversation, drive us into that conversation. And really, it's sort of what I was sharing is that I don't think any of us are supposed to take the position of being the one to end that conversation, especially on when it comes to affirming or denying something so central to human life as basically someone's human dignity and right to exist. That's not for me to decide. That's not for you to decide. So I'll just say that for me, uh, I've come to a place where no matter what theology, no matter what uh, the the biblical scholarship, that reality of essentially LGBTQ teen suicides amongst all of the other concerns and issues related to sexuality has to take Uh, a kind of precedence and drive us back into a conversation or stay in the conversation or stay open uh, at least to let other people decide for themselves what they need, what they think is right for them. uh, And to essentially stop being the, the theological power that decides who's in, who's out. Is it, are you feeling similar, Nate? Yeah, totally. And we've talked about this so many times on the show with many different topics. And I've said before um, Christianity in the large sense, the Jesus, Jesus people will not die. It just doesn't die. It's, it's been challenged so many times before, whether we're looking at slavery or a flat earth, or I even brought up that example of, um, weather. I think one time on the show with the guy who was trying to chart weather a few hundred years ago. Wait, I, don't, I do not think you brought this up and I'm fascinated. Did I say that on the talking show? About- <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, this is just an aside for you. I, maybe I want to include that in the show then right now, but, uh, wait, should I? If I get it, then the people get it. 
Oh, uh, maybe I didn't say it on the show, but uh, I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about how kind of charting weather came about. It's when they, you know, like on some of those radio programs, they'll like say the, I can't remember what it's called, but like the shipping forecast for each day. It's kind of this like almost therapeutic sounding thing. But anyways, the, the shipping forecast started because this guy was seeing a bunch of people dying on the waterways and he started this trying to figure out if he could, based on the barometric pressure, project what the weather was going to be the next day or two so that people would not be dying on the water. And so he started doing this, and this is where it gets a little bit fuzzy, but the only pushback he got was essentially from Christians and from the church saying, you know, you're trying to play God, you're trying, basically anti-science. And obviously now we we take weather forecasting for granted, and it's obvious that, yeah, you're going to forecast the the weather and that's not an area where we're overstepping God or any of these kind of things, but that's not what the church believed when it first came about. So anyways, with any of these topics, the Christian movement, the Jesus people didn't die. It just adapts and it changes and it, it moves forward. And so I think this is just another opportunity to adapt and grow and continue to make Christianity possible for the next generation. And I know a lot of people are hung up on what they believe the Bible to be saying about this topic specifically. Um, and that's the way it was for all these other topics. And it, it feels different because this is our time now. And we're not right now dealing with what the Bible says on slavery. I would say the church conceded on that. Um, the church conceded on a lot of these other things and adapted and changed and and moved forward so that it didn't die. It, wasn't, it didn't become extinct. And I think this is just the next opportunity to do that. And because of, like you said, because of the suicide rates because of the people being hurt and literally dying. I definitely agree with you. Right. So to wrap this up, I think the reason this topic of sexuality came up is because what Tim Mackey has been studying in the last year or two and what we are talking about on the show, the complexity of the Bible and the human ingenuity behind it, I really do believe uh, impacts all of this stuff, the stuff that really hits home Uh, for most of us. So we'll keep processing through that. We'll keep trying to highlight some of this complexity. Uh, I think pretty soon we're going to get into uh, this idea called snowballing uh, and how ideas and themes snowball forward through the text in the Bible, Uh, get into some of the messianism stuff. Um, It'll be fun, Uh, hopefully intriguing and uh, interesting to explore, but also try to jump back and forth into some of the more pertinent, relevant topics uh, for our own day and how rethinking the Bible ought to help us rethink our own positions and approaches to modern day issues. Totally. And if you want to find out more about the show, have any questions for us, or want to share your story, you can do that at almostheretical.com. See you next time. Peace.